that smaller plate thing doesn't work. <laughs> I put my food on smaller, I just eat more plates, you know? So, and by the way, here's a little life hack for you. If your shoes are that nasty, get new shoes. That's all I'm saying, all right? It's time to go shopping. Go to Target. You can, uh, you can get a good deal there. Life hacks. We're, uh, we're talking about this new series here, and what we're doing in this series is we're looking at these eight statements that Jesus made. They're, they're kind of shortcuts to happiness. Uh, on the surface, they're counterintuitive. They're almost a little weird if, if you, until you dig at them a little bit. You don't even know what he's talking about. But when you get in behind it and kind of understand all that he's, he's digging at, you find out that they're, they're shortcuts. They, they, they go against the flow of what we would tend to do on our own, but actually lead us to the places that we actually want to be. And that's, that's part of what's fun about Jesus' teaching. Because he's our creator God, because he designed us, when he teaches something, you can take the truth of what he says, and it will cut against kind of all the stratas of our humanity. So it, it satisfies our soul. It gets down onto a soul level. And then it'll show up in our family room. It kind of helps us at every level of our, of our life. So these counterintuitive things become huge because it allows us to get to where we want to go by kind of taking a path that we wouldn't necessarily think to take. So we're looking at these and uh, locking those in and trying to weave them into our lives so that we can achieve that as well. So let me show you this. Grab your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It would be uh, page 677 in those Bibles in the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible or a newer one, just take that one with you and keep it. Matthew chapter 5. If you're electronic, we use the version app. Y-O-U version. You can open that up. If you hit live, punch in our zip code, 44333, then you'll find the notes and everything there. You can even text us back and respond and take notes there uh, on that app if you want. Matthew chapter 5 is the place where these eight statements are found. We looked at the first two last weekend, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We, we dug at that. That word blessed in the original language. So we translated the English Bible out of the Greek language. If you, if you took that and reversed it and then brought it into a modern vernacular, it's literally our word for happy. So happy are those who... Uh, who um, are poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. That's what Jesus is saying. And we got in behind that, picked apart last week. If you want to hear all that, go out to the website, graceohio.org. You can watch it, listen to it, or you can get a free podcast through iTunes if you want and catch up on those. So the next two statements, and the the life hacks are attached there too. Uh, The next two statements then is what we want to dig at. And then I'll take you through the five useful things that Jesus is saying through them. So here's the next one in verse 5. Blessed are or happy are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So let's pull this apart a little bit. We'll just start with the first one. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. So that word meek is an interesting word because we hear it different than the people who heard it when Jesus first said it would have heard it. So when we hear the word meek, 
in our vernacular, we think of it as um, uh, shy or timid or skittish. That's how, that's how we would kind of interpret that word into our, our culture. The people who heard Jesus say that the first time would have heard it very differently. So whenever you read a phrase out of the Bible, like we're doing, we're just like picking one statement, context becomes huge, right? So context has two layers to it generally. The first context that you put a statement into is the context of the rest of the Bible. So Jesus says this, what does it mean in context of the rest of the Bible? And then the second layer of context, and I'm being general with this, but the second layer of context is culture. So in the culture, how would they have heard this? So the Bible tells us here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus sat down to teach his disciples. Jesus' original disciples, for the most part, were Jewish. So these are ancient Jewish people who had a religious background to them. And when they heard Jesus say, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the kingdom, they'll inherit the earth, they were actually familiar with that phrase. It's a phrase that they would have been raised on. And Jesus was familiar with it too, because he was also Jewish, right? I saw a guy this week, and uh, he said something to the effect of, like, I'm a Christian like Jesus was. And I said, well, Jesus wasn't a Christian. And he was like, what? Texted, tweeted it, you know. There's blogs. Jeff Bogue's a liberal, I know. There's lots of them. Just Google. So, right, so... I'm like, yeah, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, right? He wasn't a Christian. And so it's when Jesus taught, he, he taught from that perspective. In fact, a lot of what he did in the New Testament, he often quoted the Old Testament. He would have been raised with it. He would have been taught it. They viewed him as a rabbi. He acted like a rabbi. And we who adopt the teachings of Jesus, we're then the Christians. That's when things shifted, right? So when we hear this in this cultural context, you have a Jewish rabbi teaching Jewish people a phrase that they are familiar with. Now, he would have drawn this phrase from Psalms chapter 37. So if you flip back in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, if you kind of open your Bible kind of in the middle you tend to wind up in the book of Psalms. It's page 388 in those Bibles and the chairs. <clears throat> and this is why this would have rung familiar to, the, to these ancient Jewish ears, right? They would have heard it in this context. I'm going to read it, read it through together, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit. Verse 1, chapter 37, the psalmist says, Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who do evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. 
a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Ready? Verse 11. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. So in Matthew chapter 5, when the Jewish rabbi said to the Jewish people, happiness is found in meekness. Happy are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. That registered with them. And when they heard the word meek, they didn't think timid, shy, skittish. They, when they heard the word meek, they thought of this. They thought of patience, confidence, strength that is restrained. Patience, strength, confidence, strength that is restrained. Blessed are the meek. And when you go back and you look at Psalms 37 again, you start seeing this. Jesus is saying to them, when injustice happens to you, this is how the people of God respond to it. Do not fret uh, for those who are evil. Don't be envious of those who do wrong. Because like the grass, they're going to wither and die. Instead of fretting and worrying, verse uh, 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse four, take delight in the Lord. Verse five, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust him. He will bring about your vindication. You don't need to do that. Be still, verse seven, before the Lord and wait patiently. Only do not fret when the wicked seem like they're carrying out their schemes. Instead, refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. There it is again. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. The evil will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. In a little while, the wicked will be no more. You'll look for them. You're not going to be able to find the wicked. But the meek, those who with patience and confidence and strength refrain, restrain, they'll inherit the land. The wicked will plot, but the Lord laughs at the wicked because the Lord knows their day is coming. Meekness is this confidence, this strength, this ability to take power and bring it under control because you're trusting that the Lord will accomplish justice and the Lord will make things right. You ever found a person that's always thumping their chest? I could do this, and I could do that, and I could do the other thing, right? We would look at that person and say they're arrogant. You find a person who's meek, they're a person who has great confidence in who they are. They have the ability, the right, and even the opportunity to exercise that strength, but they choose not to because they know that they stand in a position of right and they know that their victory is secured, okay? So I think, when I think of meekness, I think of my mother. My mother, Phyllis Joe Bogue. Phyllis Joe was from Kentucky. That's why she was named after a guy, right? Phyllis Joe, I had a person coming up to me after her service, she's like, my middle name's Joe, and my mother was from Kentucky. I'm like, see, that's the way it works. It's genetic, it just happens. Phyllis Joe Bogue. So my mother was a very sophisticated, very intelligent, lovely lady, 
but if you messed with her, her inner redneck would come out, right? And you don't mess with your mama's inner redneck. Children of all ages, this is a life hack. Don't mess with your mama's inner redneck. If your mom starts talking with an accent, leave the room immediately, right? So I remember coming home one time when I was in high school, I was like 16, 17, young and cocky. Now I'm middle-aged and cocky. And I used to have really long hair, believe it or not. So it was like halfway down my back. And then the front of my hair was like halfway down my chest. It could come down. And then I, I like buzzed out the middle of my head. It was an 80s thing. It was huge. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, I know. I know, ladies. You wanted to date me in high school. I know how it works, right? So it was cool. If you still have that haircut, make an appointment. We need to work with your soul, right? But that was a big deal in the 80s, right? So I came home, my mom came to me and she's like, you need to get a haircut. I was like, I don't need a haircut. She said, Goes, she said get a haircut. I said, I'm not getting a haircut. She said, I'm telling you to go get a haircut. I said, no. She said, you go get a haircut. I said, make me, Phyllis. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is my mother's response, right? My mom goes, okay. Just do what you want. I'll just cut it while you're sleeping. I went and got a haircut because the inner redneck in my mother would have done that with like a hunting knife, right? I came home in college one time. I was like 19 or something like that. I said, I'm going to get my ears pierced. She goes, you're not getting your ears pierced. I said, I'm going to get my ears pierced. She goes, no, you're not. I said, I'm 19. I'm a man. I'm getting my ears pierced, Phyllis. She goes, she goes, well, that's going to be really hard for you. I said, how come? She goes, I don't know how you're going to drive without car insurance. I came home a couple years later and said, I'm, I'm, I'm in love. She said, that's great. She said, I said, I'm in love. I said, I'm going to get a tattoo. She said, you're not getting a tattoo. I said, I'm going to get a tattoo of this girl I'm in love with. It would have been hard on Heidi to have Julie tattooed across my <laughs> heart my whole life. But I said, I'm going to get a she said, you're not getting a tattoo. I said, I'm getting a tattoo. I'm a grown man getting a tattoo. She goes, oh, that's so disappointing. I said, how come? She goes, I always dreamt of you graduating from college, and now you're not going to be able to pay for it. Meekness. She doesn't have anything to prove. She's in total control, right? And she knows it, right? She knew full well I was afraid of my her, <laughs> you know? She's in total control. She doesn't need to thump her chest. She doesn't need to be arrogant. She's just stating the facts. This is meekness. It's looking, I have the ability, I have the right, I might even have the opportunity, but I'm choosing to restrain that strength. Why? Because I'm choosing instead to trust in the Lord. In fact, the psalmist says, listen, refrain from anger, turn from wrath, because those things will lead you to wickedness, to evil. You'll become the sinner you're mad at. But if you take that injustice and you give it to me, I laugh at the wicked because I know their day is coming. Every injustice will be satisfied. Every wrong will be righted. And people who are followers of Christ, we don't take vengeance ourselves. We step back in confidence in who God is, and we let those who oppress us deal with the God of justice. It's not shyness or timidness, weakness, or skittishness, it's meekness. I am refraining and I am restraining because I trust in who God is. 
And I'm doing that instead of fretting or harboring bitterness, anger, malice, rage, and brawling. I'm giving that over to God. When we fret, we forget the power of God. When we take vengeance, we actually limit the accountability of the wicked. Who's going to settle the score better, me or the creator of the heavens and the earth? As the people of God, we believe that the power of God will defend and avenge and repay all wrongdoings. I don't need to do God's job. I need to trust and yield to God's heart. I respond in meekness because you know what? When I'm defined by the Lord and meekness is a characteristic of one who is defined by Christ, I inherit the earth. Do whatever you want. I'm going to come out on top. You can oppress me all you want. I'm going to come out on top. When you're looking God in the eye and being punished for all of eternity, separated from his heart, I'll be ruling the world with Jesus Christ. It's a confidence. It's a patience. It's not an arrogance. It's not a cockiness. It's not a haughtiness. It's just a confidence that God is with me and you cannot stop that from happening. And whether in this life or throughout eternity, justice will be done. <clears throat> now, guys, what meekness does, it connects us to the heart of God because it reflects God's heart. But it also changes our relationships with each other. What if you let God straighten your husband out? How much energy do you spend trying to get him to behave, right? What if you let God straighten your husband out and you took that same energy and trusted and delighted in the Lord? What if you let God deal with your wife's heart and you dealt with your own and you trusted and delighted in the Lord? What if you let God deal with your ex? Why, why, do you, why do you have to tell the kids how evil he is? Why do you have to do petty, spiteful things? What if you trusted the justice of God who does know the story and understands it all? What if we let God deal with the politicians? Do we really need to go off on Facebook? Or is it God who raises up kings and God who tears them down? What if I invested myself and the people around me and prayed for their hearts instead of surrendering my testimony and causing divisions with people? Just meekness. I have the ability, I have the right, I might even have the opportunity but I'm choosing to bring that strength under the control of God. Meekness is not a call to be passive. Don't misunderstand it. It's not shyness, weakness, timidity. It's not a call to be passive. It's a reminder that your calling is to love the Lord and your neighbor, not to do God's job for him. And God is the God of justice. God is also a God of vengeance and wrath. And he will defend and avenge 
and make all things right. I don't need to do that for him. Why? Because when I surrender myself to God, I'll inherit the earth. And I can take confidence and rest and even patience in that. So happiness is found in meekness. Happiness is not found in evening the score. It's found in meekness with great confidence that God will make all things right. Now the next statement is, is tied to the same thread. Remember, so context. So we're going to take a statement, we're going to push it back into the context of Scripture, and then the context of culture. And this is what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Blessed are the meek for those who inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's really fascinating the wording that Jesus uses there. Because he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. All Jesus' words are intentional. So why did he use that picture of hunger and thirst? I want you to, I want you to first see what he doesn't say. So he doesn't say, blessed are those who correct their behavior. Blessed are those who get their act together and act righteously. Uh, blessed are those who come to church the most, they're the more righteous. Blessed are those who leave the gent road and go over to the extension. You won't be more righteous, but you will be happier in life, I'm just saying, all right? But it's not what he's saying, it's not, it's not a behavioral thing he's talking about. So when he uses these words, he uses them really fat, in a fascinating way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst are not behaviors, they're instincts, right? So I, I can't alter hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst is an instinct that must be satisfied. So for instance, if I was struggling with materialism, I could alter my perspective and address that struggle. So if I wanted to buy blah, blah, and I went and I hung out with kids in Haiti, I would alter my, I might devalue blah, blah, and look at real poverty and try to do something about it, right? Morality is a behavior. If I'm tempted to live immorally, I can alter my focus and I can change that behavior. I can... I can quit sleeping with my girlfriend. I can shut the computer screen. I can alter my behavior and deal with that. If I'm thirsty, I can't alter my behavior and satisfy my thirst. The only thing I can do is drink. If I'm hungry, I can't alter my behavior and, and satisfy my hunger. The only thing I can do is address the instinct. The only thing I can do is eat. So Jesus grabs that and he's using this play on words. He's saying, blessed are those who have an instinct for righteousness. Blessed are those who have an instinct to be in right relationship with God. Blessed are you who pursue or engage the instinct to have right or correct relationship with God for you will be filled. So the Bible teaches us that God is our creator, right? God created us, and that human beings are created in the likeness of God. We're the only part of creation that is created in the likeness of God. And part of what that means is this, 
that we're the only part of creation that is created to worship, right? So no other, trees don't worship, right? Dogs don't go to church. Cats aren't welcome, right? <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry. We teach the truth here, right? So, so it's true. So human being, only a human being thinks to pray. Only a human being longs to worship. Only a human being would go to church. Why? The Bible says because we're created in the image of God, and that is actually written on our heart. It's hardwired into us to pursue God so that our soul is at peace with God. It's an instinct. Just like when I'm thirsty or I'm hungry or I, don't, I can't have access to oxygen, I have an instinct to go for God. So God says, blessed are you, happy are you, who instinctually pursue the right relationship with God. Happiness is found in moving toward God as opposed to away from God. Happiness is found when you pursue God. Why? Because it's, it's literally wired into our humanity to be at peace with God. Now, it's fascinating. The same guy who wrote Psalms 37 talks about this same instinct. If you flip over to the right in your Bible, like, a, I don't know, two or three pages, you'll hit Psalms 42. And the psalmist writes about this same, this instinct. Verse one, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? I have to satisfy this instinct. Go over to the right a little bit more, maybe, I don't know, 10 pages or so. Psalm 63, verse 1, same wordplay. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jesus says happiness is found in satisfying that instinct. Now, guys, this is, <clears throat> this is a big deal, especially when you push it back into the other statements. So the first statement says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who recognize their total depravity, their complete dependence on God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who grieve their sin because it causes a separation from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who deal with that, and now they're pursuing this right relationship with God. This is where following God and being connected with God is a baseline necessity for our humanity. This is why God as a whole life balance doesn't work, right? So I'm going to lose some weight, I'm going to eat clean, and I'm going to work at being more spiritual. That's never going to satisfy your soul. This is why uh, going to church by itself doesn't work. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the gym, I'm going to get out of debt, I'm going to show up at church. It's never going to satisfy your soul. Why? Because when you're thirsty, the only thing you can do is drink. You can't 
add something or distract from it. it. You must satisfy the instinct. When my soul longs for God, the only thing I can do is surrender my soul to God. And if I'm not in right relationship, if my sins haven't been forgiven, if I'm not following Jesus, if I'm not in the relationship I was created to be in, my soul will forever long to be in that relationship. I have to yield it to God. And then it's fascinating what he says here. Jesus says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. I underline those words will be in my, in my Bible, will be, okay? So he doesn't say, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness and you get your act together and you fill yourself then by doing more spiritual activities. Uh, you'll be happier if you're a more spiritual person or you'll be happier if you go to church more. No. When I hunger and thirst for God, he is what I long for and only he will satisfy that longing. When I thirst for water, only water satisfies. When I hunger, only food will satisfy. When I hunger and thirst for righteousness, only relationship with God will satisfy God does that for me. I don't do that for God. So as my soul intertwines with the heart of God, my soul is satisfied and my soul is filled, then my life is filled and happiness is found. I wrote this in my notes. People who respond to their craving, their instinct, their need for God will be filled God wants to be found, so when we respond and look for him, he fills us. And I actually hit this passage. We talked about this a lot over Christmas. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, God says this, for people who are searching for him, this is the promise. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me in earnest, you will find me when you seek me. I will be found by you. God says, you pursue this instinct, you're going to run into me. You, you yield to this, you're going to run into me. Try to get your act together, you're going to be empty. Get to church more, it's not going to satisfy. But if you want my forgiveness and you want my heart and you want my mind and you want to be in relationship with me and you recognize that that is a baseline need of your life, I am not out to get you. I'm not playing hide and go seek. When you look for me, you will find me and I will fill you. I will satisfy that longing in you that only I can satisfy. Okay, so those two statements, <clears throat> two little statements with a bunch of meaning behind them, right? Happy are the meek for they're gonna inherit the, king, the, the earth and happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll find me. You will be filled, right? So two little statements, kind of counterintuitive. I think I'm going to be happy if I got even. God's like, eh, let me do it. I'll handle it, right? I think I'd be happy away from God because I, I feel less guilt. You know what? Your soul will be satisfied close to me. Come to me. I'll fill you up, right? So two little statements, cut through all the stratas of our humanity, lots of meaning, and they become kind of shortcuts, life hacks. To, to the life that we actually want and desire that's found in Jesus, okay? All right, so that's the backstory. Let me give you these five things, five useful things Jesus is teaching us right here. 
grab hold of these, <coughs> and uh, they'll be life-changing for you. Here they are, ready? Five useful things Jesus is teaching us right here. Number one, here it is. Going toe-to-toe keeps you from going heart-to-heart. Going toe-to-toe keeps you from going heart-to-heart. If you want to ruin your marriage, right? Here's a little life hack for you. Quickest way to ruin your marriage, here it is. Keep score. Keep score. Go tit for tat. Whatever she does to you, make sure you get back at her. However he lets you down, make sure you let him down. If you want to ruin your marriage, keep score. Because going toe-to-toe keeps you from going heart-to-heart. If you want to screw your kids up, here it is, life hack. Quickest way to screw your kids up, here you go. If you want to keep, screw your kids up, keep score. Go toe-to-toe with them. Forget that they're supposed to be an adult in the room and act like an adolescent, right? You'll screw your kids up right now. It's easy, simple, it's fun, actually. So, all right, so you can, you can do it, okay? If you want to break down friendships, if you want to make the workplace miserable, if you want to not get along with your boss, if you want to screw up your interactions at church, just keep score and you will break down any human relationship. If you want to rise above it, if you want to be someone that God uses, if you actually want to live a happier life, respond to injustices with meekness. Because going toe-to-toe will always prevent you from going heart-to-heart. Second useful thing Jesus is saying here is this. This is a big one. Ready? No one gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything. Your mama's been right this whole time. Right? No one gets away with anything. This is a huge life hack. It's a very important thing to remember why. Because if you are a victim of unjust circumstances, the thought that you're the one who victimized you would get away with it is infuriating. He, there he is. He walked out on me after 30 years. And he's with the sweet young thing over there, having the time of his life. I'm here trying to get the kids through high school and college, barely making ends meet. He is having a blast. I am living in misery. That injustice is infuriating. And the temptation is to try to write it yourself. And God would say, why don't you respond in meekness? He ain't getting away with anything. I laugh at the wicked because their day is coming. My dad, everybody thought my dad was the greatest guy in the world. They have no idea the secrets that happened in our home. And it has hurt me, and it has scarred me, and it has messed me up. And I'm having a terrible time having a healthy relationship with my own husband because my dad was a jerk and nobody knows. And the instinct, the humanity in us says, let's get even, let's tell everybody, let's keep the score. And God says, you know what? Aren't you rest? and forgive, and release, rid yourself of this bitterness, anger, and brawling, because I laugh at that because the day of the wicked, the wicked don't get away with anything. And my boss is a jerk, and he lied, and that person stole money from me, and my parents, and my kids, and that guy at church, and this person in the neighborhood, and God says, you know what? Rest, be patient, don't fret. They think they're winning. They're not because you're going to inherit the earth. And no one gets away with anything. And I laugh at the wicked because their day is coming. Guys, right there 
if we could lock on to that little life hack, it would alter your life because the energy you spend trying to do God's job redirected gives you the life that God wants to give you. Remember, no one gets away with anything. Third useful thing Jesus is teaching is this. Sand just makes you more thirsty. Sand just makes you more thirsty. So Jesus tells this story about these two dudes. One builds a house on sand. Another one builds a house on a rock. Jesus says the storms come, the floods come. Erode the sand, the house on the sand collapses. The house on the rock stands. He's drawing an analogy. He's saying temporal things, earthly things, temporary things are the sand. Eternal things are the rock. And when you build your life on eternal things, it can never be taken from you. One of the greatest things we struggle with as a culture, as people, is that we hunger and thirst for sand. If I could just make more, if I could just have that house, if I could just wear this label, if I could just date that girl, if I could just be on this team, if people would just see me this way, if I could just lose 30 pounds, if I could just have a ripped body, if I could have, you know, Jeff's sex appeal, then <laughs> my life would be happy. And Jesus would look and say, no, no, no. The more sand you take in, the more parched your soul becomes. You will never, ever be satisfied. It will never be enough. It just dehydrates you. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it satisfies the soul then. Sand only makes you more thirsty. Fourth thing, Jesus is teaching here, here it is, ready? What you give your life to determines the life that will be given to you. What you give your life to determines the life that will be given to you. The Apostle Paul says it this way, whatever you reap, you sow. You give your life to bitterness, you give your life to anger, you give your life to vengeance, you give your life to malice, you give your life to slander, you will reap that. That will be the definition of your life. You will be a bitter, unhappy, isolated person. You give your life to temporal things, I'm gonna make the money, I'm gonna get the title, I'm gonna have the zip code, I'm gonna have the hood ornament. Give your life to that, you can get it all. You can, you'll, you'll get it all probably, it's, it's, you can do it. It's gonna leave you with those things. I'm alone, I'm by myself, and I have a garage full of old dusty toys. If you give your life to righteousness and you give your life to Christ and you give your life to people and you give your life to helping, you give your life to compassion, you give your life to forgiveness, your life will be defined by that. It's what you will receive in return for what you've done. The life that you give is, determines the life that will be given to you. Here's the fifth thing. And this one sounds funny, so you gotta hear me out with it, ready? Fifth thing is this. God's presence often feels like his absence. God's presence often feels like his absence, okay? Let me walk you through this. When you are thirsty, when your body tells you you're thirsty, is your body punishing you or helping you? When you're hungry, 
when you recognize the absence of food and you're like, I need to go to Rockney's, right? You're hungry. Is your body helping you or punishing you? When you feel the absence of the thing that you need to sustain your life, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, right? If your body could love you, we would say your body's being loving by telling you you're thirsty. What if you never knew you were dehydrated until you collapsed? What if you knew, never knew you were malnourished until you died? And your body's like, oops, sorry, forgot to tell you, right? When you sense an absence, it's a gift. It's not a punishment. Listen, when you start asking the questions like, where is God? Why would he let me go through this? What's happening in my life? What, why is it? I don't feel like, I feel like he's left me. God promised to never leave you or forsake you. So he didn't. Why are those instincts kicking in in your life? Why are you suddenly asking those questions that you hadn't asked before? Is God punishing you or is he loving you? Did the recognition that you're parched or hungry or your soul is dry, that's a gift from God reminding you to pursue him. If he didn't love you, you would never notice he wasn't around. If he didn't love you, you would never notice that your soul was empty. If he didn't love you, you would never ask the questions. And when you start asking those questions, the presence of God often feels like his absence. That's actually God working in your life, activating your instinct to be connected with him so that you will act on and pursue that instinct. When you feel isolated from God, just look and say thank you and pursue God. When you feel like God didn't show up, look and say thank you. God, you're here, I'm not seeing how. Thanks for reminding me that you're here. Help me to see how. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault, right? God's presence often feels like his absence, and it's his activating that appetite, that instinct in us to go and look for him. Two statements, five useful things. Guys, if you can get a hold of just one or two of these this week, it literally will alter your life because it's what Jesus' teachings do. They go from the family room all the way down to the soul. They're counterintuitive, but our creator knows the path to our happiness and wants to help us pursue them. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute? Maybe we can just steal a few minutes and pray about these things. You know, since we're here, kind of out of the, the chaos of life, I wonder if you could ask God to help you with this. I mean, there's an area of life that you've been responding to in your own power. Maybe just asking God to forgive you and asking him to give you meekness. Trust him to do it. Maybe you've been on a, a diet of sand. <laughs> and right relationship with God. Wherever you're at, whatever God is doing in your life, would you just let him do it? 
That's what Jesus is saying. That's where happiness is. That's where satisfaction is. Recognize who I am, what you are, receive my forgiveness, and let me do this work in you and finish it and complete it so that you are, you are here who I've called you to be. Just think about it, pray about it, interact with God about these things.